Well, if you have your Bible with you, why don't you go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16. Uh, One of the things we've seen has been working our way uh, through the book of Luke. I think we're probably part 67 now, so it's taken a while. One of the things you'll find in the book of Luke, you'll find Luke does this again and again and again and again. He so often gives us a contrast between two people or two groups of people. And more often than not, he contrasts people who are morally and financially wealthy over against people who are morally unwealthy, morally poor. They're sinners. They're viewed by their society as outcasts. And very often, as a result of this, connected with this, they're also financially poor. And over and over and over again, Luke shows us that the outcast is in and the insider is out. And that's precisely what we're going to find in today's passage. Jesus tells a story in which the rich man goes to hell and the poor man goes to heaven. Now before we read it, I think we just need to clear something up. You see, it could appear that Jesus is saying that rich people are bad and poor people, well, they're good. Or if you're not generous, then you're going to hell. And if you give lots of stuff away, then that's a sure pass into heaven. You know, there are places in the Bible, in the New Testament, where it almost looks like that is what Jesus is teaching. Like, for example, in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 25, where it says that on the last day, Jesus is going to show up and he's going to divide the sheep from the goats. In other words, he's going to look at people who claim to be Christians and he's going to actually separate the genuine article from the counterfeit. And how's he going to do it? He says, you're my sheep, you're in, you're the real deal. Why? Because you fed the hungry you clothed the naked, you visited the sick, and when you treated them that way, you were showing you were treating me that way. He's going to say to others, you are not my sheep. You, you claim to be my followers, but actually you're counterfeit. You are goats. Why? Because you didn't feed the hungry, and you didn't clothe the naked, and you didn't visit the sick, and when you rejected them, actually you were rejecting me. Remember that story? It's just like the story we're going to be looking at today, and I think we have to be very, very careful, because what these stories aren't saying is that the rich man's lack of generosity to the poor was the reason he went to hell. Rather, it was the revelation of why he was going to hell. It revealed he didn't understand the gospel. It revealed he didn't understand the first thing about God's grace. And as a result, because he didn't grasp his own need for grace, he didn't show it to others. He didn't care about the weak and he didn't care about the poor. It's like as long as you are relating or responding to God on the basis of your goodness and your good works and the credit you have in the bank with God, and you think you're in a good place with Him because of yourself, 
then you'll always look down on others who you don't think are as good as you. But if you recognize that you come to God needing mercy, needing his grace, you come to him initially as poor sinners, casting yourself on him, and you receive forgiveness and grace through what Jesus did on the cross. You now recognize your identity is as children of God because of his grace. As a result, you will then show grace to others. And so, in the story we are about to look at, and I promise we'll get there in a moment, the rich man in the story, his lack of concern for a poor guy called Lazarus, it gives away, it reveals his true spiritual state. It's not the reason he goes to hell, it's the indicator of his rejection of the truth. It reveals his lack of belief. And so, all that being said, let's dive into the story in Luke 16. We're going to pick it up in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus who was covered with sores and longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Just pause there. Straight away, we're introduced to these two characters who are complete opposites. One of them is rich, one of them is poor. One is covered with these kind of luxurious garments. The other one is covered with sores. One is feasting every day. The other one is starving, longing for crumbs and not being given anything. And lastly, we're told that the rich man had a funeral. He had a burial. But there's no reference to that with the other guy. He probably died unnoticed, lying in the street. So the contrast couldn't be greater, except we've perhaps missed the most striking contrast of all. What's the most striking contrast of all? Can everyone spot it in this story? One of these guys has a name, Lazarus, and the other one doesn't. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's no difference. I mean, that's just a coincidence. I'll tell you, there is no way that this is an accident, and I'll tell you why. Every other illustration, every other story, every other parable that Jesus ever tells, nobody has a proper name. It's always a sower or a shepherd or a man or a woman or a Samaritan or or something like that. No one else is given an actual proper name. And so the fact that one character here is given a proper name, I think that's got to be significant. So what is the significance? What is the point of that? What are we being taught here? Well, I think we get a clue in verse 25 where Abraham says to this guy, the rich man, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Implication, now they're gone, there is nothing left. That the reason the rich man doesn't have a name is that is all he is. He's a rich man or he's nothing. He's built his life, he's built his reputation, he's built his identity on his wealth, so if his wealth is gone, is like there's no one there anymore. The other clue here, 
is in the meaning of the name Lazarus. Lazarus means God is my help. Listen, if you build your life on God, if God is the source of your identity, who you really are, then no matter what your circumstances, you lose things, you gain things, things change, doesn't matter what happens to you, you are still you. God continues to be your help. He defines you. Do you see? If your identity is rooted in God, then your circumstances don't define you. They don't ultimately affect who you are. I mean, Lazarus in this story, he he goes through the most incredible change of all, death, which is a fairly big change, I'm sure we'd all agree, and he was still Lazarus. He was still himself. But the rich man is different. Why? He doesn't have a name. Why not? Because if you build your identity on anything but God, if you build your identity on your career or on your children or on a love relationship, if you build your identity on your talent or your gifting or on people's approval or even on your role in the church, many, many other fine things, if you build your identity on anything but God and something jeopardizes or threatens that thing, something goes wrong in that area, something squeezes you and puts pressure on you in that area, you're not just unhappy, in the end there is no you. Because suddenly you don't feel valuable. Suddenly you don't know what you're living for. Suddenly you don't know who you are. It's like there is an identity meltdown. If you build your life on anything but God, effectively you don't really have a name. You are just a rich man, or you are just a talented musician, or you are just a wardrobe full of the latest clothes. And when your circumstances change, you are gone. There is nothing left. I'll tell you, This is a crucially important warning for all of us. And so before we move on, let me ask you a couple of questions to try to help you, to try to aid you get to the bottom of this. First of all, who are you really? Who are you? Are you willing to to go as deep as I think this passage wants you to go in order to answer that question. Who are you really? Well, let me put it to you another way. Do you define yourself in terms of your relationship with God? Or are you first a mother or a father or your parent's child? Are you just an artist? Are you just a teacher? Are you just a student? Are you just a banker or a doctor or a successful business person? Maybe you're thinking, well, you're saying there's something wrong with this. You're saying there's something wrong with wanting to have kids. Are you saying there's something wrong with wanting to get married? Are you saying there's something wrong with pursuing a career? Are you saying there's something wrong with making money? What's wrong with that? Nothing. Nothing at all. But if it's the main thing, 
If it's the thing that you could look at it and say, boy, if I don't have that, then I'm nothing. Then my life isn't worth living. Jesus is saying here that is literally true. Let's return to the story. Verse 23. In hell, where the rich man was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, Between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Again, let's just pause there. Now, can we all agree that this makes us feel ever so slightly uncomfortable? Can we all agree on that? I mean, hell is one of those things that a lot of us, if we're being honest, would quite like to airbrush out of the Bible if we possibly could. In our politically correct day and age, it kind of feels inappropriate to say that anyone is going to go to hell. It makes us sound a bit like religious bigots, doesn't it? Or preachers of hate. It's kind of unacceptable. But what I want to try and show you is that hell is actually the closest thing in the Bible to the Western civilized world's understanding of freedom. I mean, if we had the time to read through Romans chapter 1, maybe you could look at it later. Paul tells us there that God gives people over to what they say they want. You, You want to build your life around something else? You want to be your own person? You want to live your life without God? Okay, you've got it. Hell is the greatest monument to human freedom there is. As C.S. Lewis once put it, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. At the end of the day, everyone who goes to hell effectively chooses to do so. Now, bearing this in mind, why don't you take a look at what this man, this rich man in the story, asks for. He says, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Now, do you know who does that? Do you know what kind of job that is? That's a job for a servant. That that is a job for a slave. Just think about this. The rich man, in his former life, used to be on top. Lazarus was literally down there at the very bottom. But things have changed. There's been a little bit of a role reversal going on. Lazarus now finds himself up there at the top. The rich man is very much down at the bottom. But notice this, the rich man is still 
ordering him around as though he's a servant. The rich man is still doing what? He's still clinging on to his status, even though it's not there anymore. He still thinks he can boss him around. It is astonishing the level of denial, how very much out of touch with reality he is. Although he admits to being in torment, he still thinks he's in charge. He's still holding on to that old identity factor, his status, his place, his position. Now this is odd. Until you understand what hell is all about. Hell is your freely chosen false identity going on forever and ever and ever and ever. Hell is nothing more than what you ask for. Hell is always something you effectively choose. Again, as C.S. Lewis puts it, again, I think he's brilliant on this. C.S. Lewis says, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is a simple question. So what exactly are you asking God to do then? I mean, to, to wipe out past sins and at all costs give people a fresh start? He has on Calvary. He has on the cross. What are you asking him to do? Just, just forgive people? They won't ask for forgiveness. What are you asking for? For God just to leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that is just what he must do do. C.S. Lewis concludes, Christianity asserts we're all going on forever and this must either be true or false. If it's true, there are many good things which would not be worth bothering about if I were only going to live, let's say, 80 years, which I had better bother about if I'm actually going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse so gradually that the increase in my lifetime will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years' time. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct term for it. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you're still distinct from it, separate from it for a long time. You may even criticize it in yourself, wish you could stop it. But there will come a day when you can no longer stop it. Then there'll be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on and 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 on forever like a machine. It is not a question then of God sending anyone to hell. In each of us, there is something growing up which will be hell unless, with God's help, it is nipped in the bud. Isn't that what we see with the rich man here in this story? It is almost like an addiction. And do you know how addiction works? You we always see these two things, these two stages to addiction. First one is disintegration. It's like the thing you look to to make everything okay. As time goes on, it always becomes less and less and less pleasurable. And so you need more and more to get the kick. And after a while, that doesn't even help. 
See, in the beginning, there is pleasure. It does help you. It's a thing that makes things okay for a while. But as time goes on, you get less and less and less satisfaction out of it. Get more and more miserable. But you can't stop. Get more and more unhappy. But you can't stop. Just keep doing it over and over and over and over again. You're just slowly disintegrating. But you can't break free. Second thing is isolation. You blame everybody. You, you, you blame others. You're in denial. You make excuses. You become the victim. And you feel more and more cut off from people because you think everyone's against you. You say, nobody understands what I'm going through here. Listen, the more you embrace self-pity, the more self-absorbed you become, the more self-centered you are, the more over time you find yourself getting cut off. It's like anything you make the basis for your identity, anything you make the basis of who you are besides God, it's like the substance that you're addicted to. Now in this life, even if you live, let's say, 80 years, the disintegration and the isolation might not go that far. It might be bearable. But for an eternity, it will be hell. That's exactly what's happening here in this story. But don't you see what this rich guy's doing? Why is he ordering Lazarus around? I think he's still going after that high. He's still going after the source. He's still going after authority and ordering people around. It's pitiful. It's completely and utterly ridiculous. I think that's where the imagery of fire comes in. It's an image of disintegration. And then you see the isolation. It says he looked up and he saw Abraham and Lazarus far away. Abraham goes on to talk about the chasm between them. It is a sobering warning. The more self-centered you get, the more self-absorbed you get, the more you get locked in a casket of self-pity and nobody understands and nobody knows what's going on, the more isolated you become. I suggest that's at least a part of the agony, the torment of hell. So just to recap, Jesus is telling us we all need a change of identity because if we build our identity on anything other than God, we're opting for, we are choosing, we're embracing an eternity of disintegration and isolation. So I think the all-important question is how do we avoid this? I mean, if we just ended the message now, it would be somewhat bleak and poor AD here having to pick it up for worship later, it would be a struggle. So how do we avoid this? Well, let's read the last bit of the story. Verse 27, he answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I've got five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, 
they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus is telling us here how we can get this changed identity. First of all, he shows us how it doesn't come. Effectively, this man is pleading for his brothers to be scared into changing. He says, if there was something spectacular, like Lazarus shows up, like a ghost appears to them, that would put the fear of God into them. That would scare them into doing something about this. Abraham's response, that's never going to work. Fear is not enough to change someone's identity. The rich man says, look, if someone would come from the dead, then they'll get it. Abraham says they won't get it even if someone rises from the dead. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. I tell you, this this is pretty remarkable. Jesus is actually saying, even if you were there standing outside the tomb, you saw that the stone rolled away, and out I came, and you saw where my hands had been pierced and all that. He said, wow, it's incredible. He must be God. That's not enough. That won't do it. You need Moses and the prophets to explain why I died and rose. Without the Bible, without the scriptures, unless you know why I died and rose, just being scared just being frightened, just being amazed, just being impressed, just being inspired. That's not enough to change your identity. You can't say, well, I've listened to this sermon and I found this all very, very interesting or very, very scary. I see that I do put too much importance on this other stuff in my life. I better not do that anymore. I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to change just by an act of the will. You you can't change just by trying. You can't change just as a result of being scared in the moment. You, You can't even change by being amazed. Here's how the change comes. Jesus says, you've got to go to the Scriptures, you've got to go to the Bible and listen to why I died and rose. Because unless you know why I died and rose, you won't really be changed. What we need more than anything else is to see how much I love you. Now, time doesn't permit us to look at all of the law and all of the prophets. I mean, we did that in our Bible in 20 weeks, uh, just in one week. We we covered pretty much all of that. Go go on the website, have a listen to that. Andy did a great job covering all of the prophets in in half, well, 45 minutes. Um, uh, We're not going to go there again right now, but I at least want to look at one of the prophets. Here's what it says in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant, about the one who's going to come and pay the price for sin. This is an Old Testament prophecy about Jesus. In Isaiah 53, verse 10, this is what it says. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the fruit of his suffering and be satisfied. Let's just meditate for a moment on that last sentence, that last statement. I believe Jesus would say to you, if you want to change, you have to have such a transforming, 
such an overwhelming experience of my love for you that it will pull your heart away from these other things that are giving you right now such an unstable, disintegrating, isolating identity. If you want what only I can give you, first of all, you have to see how much I love you. You need to see how much my suffering is tied to your value, tied to your identity. It says he will see the fruit of his suffering and be satisfied. What's the fruit of his suffering? Us. What the Bible is saying is you are so incredibly valuable to Jesus that the suffering was worth it. So let's sink in. Jesus went through this much suffering because his love for you was greater, was stronger, even than the suffering itself. So, if your identity, if your value, if your worth is tied to how much suffering he went through for you, how much suffering did he go through? remember when Jesus was on the cross what did he say my God my God how these nails hurt my God my God I think I'm suffocating here my my God my God the the thorns are terrible my God my God this spear in my side it hurts so much do you know what he says My God, my God, why have you cast me far away? He says, why have you forsaken me? At the end of the day, you're never going to have your heart utterly changed, your identity changed by a sense of the love of Jesus unless you realize how much he suffered for you. Let me try and illustrate it for you like this. If you came home, one day this week, and slightly creepy as this sounds, I was there in your house. Imagine that. Uh, and I said, uh, it gets even creepier. Imagine I said, hope you don't mind, while you're out, I opened all your post. Okay, so it's, that's not going to happen, but just imagine. Imagine that happened. And I opened your post, and there was a bill there. And I said to you, it's okay, I paid it for you. How excited would you be? Well, it depends, right? You have to figure it out. Maybe it was just postage due on a package. Maybe it was, I don't know, two or three pounds or something. Well, you'd probably be a little awkward about it. it. might shake my hand and say thank you and forget all about it. But what if it was the inland revenue saying you owe 10 years of back taxes and we're going to chase you for every last penny? And what if I said, it's okay, I've paid the lot. It's like, you have no idea whether just to kind of awkwardly shake my hand or to fall to the ground and kiss my feet until you know how much I paid, how great the cost, how great the sacrifice. I don't know. Maybe you're the kind of person who says, I don't believe in hell. Can't believe in that. I I believe God's a God of love. I I believe God just accepts everyone. Ultimately, is that going to change you? 
No. I mean, it hasn't, has it? If you don't believe in hell, you will never know what Jesus went through. If you say, well, I don't want to believe in hell. Fine. But you're doomed to never knowing just how much he loves you. On the cross, he didn't say, my God, my God, these nails hurt. He said, why have you forsaken me? He was separated from the Father. He was far away. He was getting the fire, the agony, the torment. He was experiencing hell, all the infinite disintegration that comes from the weight of the sin of all humanity. That's what he was experiencing on the cross. He experienced that. So you and I wouldn't have to. When he says, I value you, so much that hell was worth it then and only then do you have a measure then do you know what you're worth then you know who you are if your identity is found in him Jesus says you must listen to Moses and the prophets you must listen to the Bible you must listen you see it's not enough just to believe he rose from the dead You could have been there and seen him rise from the dead, but unless you know why, unless you understand a bit of what he went through, you'll never know how much he loves you. I'm telling you, unless you believe in hell, you cannot know how much he loves you. So as we draw to a close, I want to, invite you to consider doing two things first of all won't you embrace this won't you accept this you know the the, the Pharisees who were there in the crowd listening to this teaching of Jesus they mocked Jesus for it It says back in verse 15 they they were self-justifiers maybe you can relate to that Maybe you are banking on God accepting you in the end because you're trying really hard to be a good person. Or maybe you're you're looking to other things to bring you security, to bring you fulfillment, to save you, a bit like the rich man does in this story. Either way, at the end of the day, these things don't bring us a whole lot of lasting comfort. But the doctrine of hell provides the greatest comfort of all anybody who hears it whether you know you're a Christian or not first of all it offers the most incredible comfort because God says you don't have to go there why because my son endured it so you wouldn't have to you only go to hell if you choose to reject this offer and for those who accept this offer God says unless you believe in hell you'll have no idea how much you mean to me If you understand what Jesus has done, it's the only way you'll get anywhere close to knowing what you're worth to him. And it's only then that you'll begin the transformation of identity that we've been talking about this morning. So that's the first thing. Won't you embrace this? Won't you accept it? And here's the second thing. Please, don't be afraid of death. You don't have to be afraid of death. Now don't hear me wrong. Without Jesus, you should 
fear death. I mean, there is a real warning here. You, you, you don't want to be like the rich man. Choosing to ignore Jesus and go it alone will result in eternal disintegration and isolation. But for those who get their identity from Jesus, you don't have to be afraid of it anymore. Recently heard of someone whose wife died, tragically. And he was driving his young children to his wife's funeral, their mother's funeral. On the way, a lorry went by and a shadow was cast over their car. In the moment, he turned to his kids. He said something like this. See that lorry? Would you rather be run over by the lorry or by the shadow of the lorry? Of course, the kids replied, we'd rather be run over by the shadow of the lorry. And he said this. Okay, I just want you to realize something. This will be all right. It will be all right. You see, Jesus was hit by the lorry. So your mum just had to go through the shadow. Jesus was run over by death. So your mum just has to go through the shadow. And so it's going to be okay. For those who would say, God is my help. Those for whom their identity is rooted in Christ. Death is nothing more than a shadow that we cross through to get to the one who loves us more than we could ever, ever imagine. If you would, you just close your eyes. I want to give you a few moments just to consider your response to this message. Three options I want to give you. Number one, maybe you're here today and you've never accepted God's offer. You can become a Christian today. You, you can know this relationship with God that we've been talking about today. When you accept God's offer, or at the very least, if you feel, no, 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 I'm just not quite ready, at the very least, would you resolve to look into it some more? It is at least worthy of looking into some more. This is a great place to do that, a safe place to do that, to ask your questions. When you accept God's offer, or maybe secondly, you say, I already have. But for whatever reason, over the years, you've allowed other things slowly to move in and define you. Last night, I had a vivid dream. I don't remember my dreams often, but I was woken up with this one. Uh, I, I dreamt that uh, I returned home, I, I left the door open, I, I walked in, and everything had been stolen. Absolutely everything. If God would say, for some of you, it's like you have left the door open, and the enemy has come in and robbed you of what's yours has stolen your identity in Christ but it's not too late today I want to invite you to come back to the place of saying God is my help he's my true identity 
some of you, you can do that right now. And the third response is one of worship. <laughs> yeah, th- this is a tough message, but also it's a glorious message. If we find our identity in Christ. In a few moments, we're going to respond in worship. I want to invite you, like never before, to respond to God in worship. Why don't you just reflect on your response? And I'm going to invite Andy just to come and pray and, uh, and take things on from here.